So hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. Now, we have some very special guests joining us from BASF today. We have Melissa Clough-Mastry, Director of Global Technology and Technical Services, and Mark Schmalfeld, Global Marketing Manager of Refining Catalysts. Today, we're going to be speaking with them about the energy transition and how that's impacting refiners around the world. We're talking about co-processing, catalysts, and a whole lot more. So we got a lot to get to today, so I'd like to welcome in our special guests. Melissa, Mark, how are y'all doing today? Great. Great. Doing great. Great to be here. Excellent. Well, again, thank you all for giving us a couple minutes of your time today to discuss these these really important topics that are affecting our industry. So now before we get started, just so the listeners know a little bit more about y'all, can you talk about your particular roles at BASF? So, Melissa, let's go ahead and start with you. Yeah, um, so I'm leading our tech technology and technical services group. Um, my group is tasked with working directly with the with the refiners around the world um, when it comes to various technical challenges and especially when it comes to energy transition projects. And we're also in, involved in, um, in managing the new product development process, so the innovation process. Excellent. How about for you, Mark? Yeah, so I guess a little bit of background. I guess um, our marketing group's been heavily involved in working with the innovation team and, and Melissa's team as we look at uh, new needs for innovation in the industry. And one of those specifically being how to respond to needs in the energy transition area, whether that's uh, how we process these renewable fuels or feedstocks. Um, and then the team's also involved in what you would say all your traditional marketing, um, standard marketing aspects. Uh, so I've been involved in the industry for over 25 years, and I'm, I think we're really uh, looking forward to sharing uh, more on this energy transition, uh, some of our thoughts on it today. Excellent. And yeah, that's, uh, that's a great segue into my first question to start this conversation. So as I mentioned in my intro, this energy transition, of course, is impacting how refiners evaluate their feedstocks for the future. So can you talk a little bit about how that's impacting refiners? And then as a follow-up, are they considering things like alternative feedstocks? Yeah. So as uh, if you think about the energy transition, I think it's resulted uh, really in many refiners having to take a more serious uh, evaluation of the configuration they have in place uh, so they can achieve net zero targets. Um, and that's driving them to really look at alternative feedstocks in a way that you might never have expected in the past. And so not only is it to get to the net zero targets, they're looking at it from the standpoint of can it drive profitability as well. So a, a recent survey we did indicated, uh, and it was a global survey, that almost 64% of those uh, participants expected to use more than 5% of uh, some sort of alternative feedstock in the coming few years. So that was really kind of an amazing result to us, that how many things people are looking at using and that they're going to use it at something more than 5%. So yes, I see this as an important uh, aspect and there's really a lot of urgency behind it, particularly in Europe and North America, to look at this as part of the energy transition. Um, also, as recently as a week ago, there was a, another example of a, uh, almost a three-quarter of a billion dollar investment approved by a major oil firm uh, to add more renewable diesel production capacity. So a lot going on in the renewable 
uh, diesel area in the uh, coming few years and, and already in the past several years. So regulations are driving this, uh, as well as those regulations providing some economic benefit to people to support this alternative feedstock. So um, I really think the other thing that's really critical um, that we're seeing people look at is, um, so not only are they trying to figure out how to do it for sustainability need, it's also driving the need to look at uh, what kind of technologies are involved um, and how they develop this new knowledge and technology so they can optimize these operations. So that's how they're looking at it in the future. So it's important for the future transition to energy to look at these new, uh, these new feedstocks. Actually, and so Melissa, that's kind of what I want to ask you this next question, kind of in regards to Mark's answer. So how is the industry developing their knowledge within this area? Yeah, and this is a, an important aspect of how we can achieve all of these goals, right? Um, I think the first and foremost, we have to think of this as, you know, the most important thing here is collaboration. Um, but let me back up a little bit. So, so knowledge in this space, this area has, has been developed um, over several decades, if I can say. And you really can see the presence of the knowledge in this area, especially in the scientific community. If you look at the peer-reviewed literature in this space, it's really quite rich. Um, but if we talk about from an operating perspective at an operating level, it's really only in the recent decade or so that we see such high interest from, let's say, refiners, right? Um, and not talking about it only as a theoretical topic, but as an, you know, something that they can and would like to implement. Um, so with that, many many of the recent conferences and you know technical exchanges within the industry have been focusing on this topic, um, especially in the last yeah five years or so. Um, and it's really important that these the these conferences and technical exchanges continue to focus on this because it's really an opportunity for everyone to get together, right? So people like refiners, operators, licensors, suppliers, and even new players to the market, new businesses that are entering the field. Um, it allows everyone to get together and, and get back to that word that I started with, right, which was collaboration. The flip side of this is, you know, this is a pretty competitive field um, and everybody's looking for their competitive advantage as they explore the different opportunities. Uh, but that being said, a planned collaboration and, and more collaboration is what's, what's required for us as an industry to be successful here. Um, so I can speak on behalf of ourselves. We at least are focused on building these collaborations with refiners, um, but also with research universities, licensors, different institutes to help to continue to build the knowledge and you know develop the experience required to really get this off the ground to a more substantial level. Um, and you know we we do that to support the refiners in the industry, and you know to come back to it to define the catalysts that are needed to to achieve this. Excellent. And now I want to go back to you, Mark, because um, I want to touch on, on, on different feedstocks uh, moving forward. Now, now, what kind of processes are being considered for the types of feedstocks you're talking about in your first uh, answer? Yeah, so so uh, thanks, Lee. So there's a really a wide variety of feedstocks that that can, or processes that can be considered for for these alternative feedstocks. Um, 
some use, I'll say, existing processes within the refineries where others are new processes and there's some are really new dedicated production plants. So uh, let me talk through a couple of them here. So licensors are offering processes where they might put steps within the refinery that are new processes to allow uh, converting parts of refineries to process these new feedstocks. Uh, we see um, also dedicated production facilities being built. Uh, examples is the uh, ability to convert fats and oils uh, into renewable diesel. So those are uh, almost all dedicated new production facilities that are that are being installed. We see new pyrolysis oil processes, uh, which is a, a, a rich variety of innovation in that as people are very creative in terms of what they're doing right there. Uh, in fact, there's ultimately going to be some learning, I think, that's very tremendous in this area. Um, and then the upgrading of those pyrolysis oils via whether that's hydroprocessing, hydrotreating, or processing the pie oils themselves in some way. Um, and then you you also are seeing processes where they take uh, an entire refinery and dedicate the conversion of that entire refinery site to some new renewable feedstock processing. Um, and then finally, there's options of co-processing through conversion units, whether that's an FCC unit um, or a hydroprocessing unit. So it really deciding what to do needs some really careful evaluation on what process to select. So it depends on the feedstock that's available um, and it needs to match, I guess, the configuration of, of the refinery uh, that you're in the objectives of that refinery. And uh, at times it can take some significant capital investment. So, and I guess if we go back to why you have to do this careful evaluation, sometimes it's really where is the feedstock available or not is, is a key key aspect in selecting the process. Um, and then finally, when I think about the co-processing aspect, co-processing uh, in terms of an FCC can be a good initial option for people to, to evaluate uh, because it allows using a unit that's very flexible in the refinery. So FCC units have traditionally uh, been stretched uh, to try and use a wide variety of feeds. And this is another opportunity to continue to stretch and use those alternative feeds. So that's another thing that makes the, the co-processing um, through FCC or hydroprocessing side a really uh, interesting thing to evaluate quickly. Perfect, yeah, and in, in, I wanna stick on this co-processing uh, topic here for a minute. So uh, Melissa, for people that, not, that are not familiar with it, can you explain what FCC co-processing is? And I guess as a follow-up to that, why would you consider that kind of process? Yeah, great, great question, questions. Um, okay, so first of all, what is FCC co-processing? Um, I mean, from a simple definition perspective, it's it's a way to describe when a fluid catalytic cracker unit processes more than one type of feed. Um, and if you think about it, in reality, a typical FCC is always processing different streams um, for the most part. We could think of, you know, if we think about what happened about a decade ago, if you if you all remember that, um, we could think of what happened 10 years ago during the tide oil boom in the early to mid 2010s. Um, we could think of that also as a co-processing time when, you know, we as an industry were being challenged to use some of these oils that were coming to the market, right? So at the time it was light, tight oils. Um, and we, it was a really fun time. We were challenged with um, how to co-process, if I'm to use one of the buzzwords from today, um, how to co-process the light, tight oils back in the, you know, a decade ago. Um, if you use the the word co-processing today in the FCC context, um, it's really applied to when an FCC process 
processes um, renewable or recycled feed. Um, so sort of, you know, the types of feeds that we were talking about before. Um, so they would process it in conjunction or next to with um, the standard petroleum-based feed. Um, and then to go back to one of your, your the second question, Lee, that you asked, um, why would somebody, why would a refiner, why does our industry consider this? Um, it really, you know, it's one of the the pressures that we're feeling these days um, is, you know, to be a little bit more sustainable, right, in the, the generation of energy and chemicals. So we're trying to capture some sustainability and economic benefits, so both of them, when we can co-process a renewable or recyclable feed, uh, we can think about lowering the carbon footprint of what we're putting into the FCC. And then um, from a consumer perspective, right, sometimes there's a premium to some of those, some of these materials that have, let's say, a bio-based um, origin or a recycled aspect. So from an economic benefit, that's one of the drivers that we're seeing from the refiners, why, would, why they would consider to co-process. Excellent. And, and and this one's back to you, Mark. So uh, we're talking about different feedstocks here. So, I mean, what types of alternative feedstocks are uh, refiners and or petrochemical operators considering? Yeah, thanks, Lee, for that question. I think we've sort of danced around answering that question explicitly, and we probably need to actually dive into that in a little bit of detail here. So I'm going to break it into three big categories, and, and really the three big categories you can come to are there's plastics or renewable or recyclable kind of feeds, I'll, I'll call them recyclable kind of feeds like plastics or tires um, as one really big category. A second big category that people are looking at is biomass um, as a type of category. Um, and the third is uh, that I think people are focused on are, are MSW or municipal solid waste, which is really a mixed category in many respects. So it's a mixture or hybrid category of many things kind of put together. It can include biomass or plastics. So let me go a little deeper into each of those separately. So plastics uh, focuses on recyclable materials, and, and most often they're doing uh, producing a pile from that material uh, that they can then uh, use within a processing uh, step within a refinery or pre-processing step. Uh, the other thing is some refiners are, are even looking at can they use that plastic directly and uh, ways to take that and utilize that. Um, one of the things to think about when you think about plastics is the feedstock quality can vary a lot depending on the specific material used. So it's really important uh, to look at the start of the process then on how do you sort those plastics or sort those those materials so that you can have a good understanding or at least a good understanding of the mix of materials that's available uh, to be utilized. So specific examples are to think about polypropylene or polyethylene. So if you can get really pretty clean streams of those, they're really pretty good fits and they're low contaminants and they're very good fits within uh, and low risk, uh, good fits within the refinery uh, with low risk uh, in terms of processing. So they're, they're great feedstocks to go into the refiner. PVC though is another example, has some high level of chloride contaminants and poses a lot of concerns in a refiner because of those chlorides in terms of some of the risks uh, associated with that. So you really have to understand the balance between some of the different feedstocks and then select them carefully. Additionally, you gotta look at those options of how you can pretreat that. So if you have one of those contaminants, is it possible to, to achieve what you need by taking the pyrolysis oil and treating it to pull out some of those contaminants to get it ready uh, so that it can be processed in the unit? Um, so that's 
kind of the plastics category uh, or the or maybe a, a little broader, the recyclable uh, category. If we think about biomass and as the next big category, uh, so biomass materials um, used uh, in terms of the industry uh, also very specific to the type of material uh, or starting material selected. Uh, so if we pick one of the biggest categories of growth today and focus, it's the fats and oils. Uh, and fats and oils are often purified and treated um, and can be ideal feedstocks for things like going into renewable diesel. They can also be really good feedstocks in terms of low-risk feedstocks to go into um, an FCC to initially try it if you did uh, co-processing as an example. Um, but again, you need to consider availability and sourcing. So fats and oils can be things such as used cooking oils. It could be soybean oil. It could be palm oil. Um, it can also be things such as rendering fats from production plants from, um, in terms of animal fats. So those are actually the things that are considered there. If you go one step further in this process, you're thinking a little bit about cellulose, lignin-based materials, and biomaterials that could could produce pioles, but they have different characteristics, uh, much more difficult to process generally. So it could be could depend whether it's from poplar wood, straw, seed, seed pits, or those kind of things. They definitely carry a much higher oxygen content and generally can carry carry different kind of contaminant materials or metals uh, with them. So it might be certain different levels of sodium, potassium, um, calcium, uh, whatever might be part of that uh, bio-based material there. Uh, so that has to be considered in the processing and how do you remove some of those impurities or design your process to, to, to work. And finally, municipal solid waste has had a lot of interest recently um, as a source um, to be used. It's a hybrid category that uh, needs some uh, pre-sorting often, um, and it's also offers some advantages generally in terms of cost um, and then availability in different areas. Uh, so that's this kind of complexity on this one requires a little bit of technology to meet the needs. Uh, there's definitely things such as AI sorting or uh, basically artificial intelligence being applied to sorting. Um, there's some new materials being evaluated in terms of processing this, this uh, in terms of catalyst or in terms of absorbance for pretreatment. Um, and then you also, it's really critical to work with when you think of a supplier of these any of these feedstocks, it's important that they help define the source of that feedstock, the consistency of those feedstocks, or, or the variability range, and then be able to have a process to monitor it so the operation unit can know how to, uh, how to consistently process and design their, uh, their production process to be successful. No, yeah, it's definitely interesting. And, and, and back to you, Melissa, I'm mean, kind of curious how does VSF uh, categorize these? Yeah, um, it's a it's a great question, a great follow up to what Mark was just describing. So um, thanks, Mark, for for setting this one up. Um, Mark just described a you know some of the categories, um, and it's often a question that we get from from refiners. You know, how do we characterize these new feeds? Um, and is what we've been doing for the past uh, you know 50 years applicable to what we're doing today? Um, so what we've seen is, is most, but not all. Um, so I'll say most of the normal petroleum feedstock test methods, um, you know, ASTM or otherwise, um, they can be used as part of the characterization of some of these new feedstocks. So we're talking about aniline point, acid number, gravity, metals, that type of thing, um, boiling point in some cases. Um, something as simple as hydrogen to carbon ratio is, is really telling. So that's one important characterization that we always have to do. 
Um, but sometimes we, we see the need to do additional testing to, to look at some of the more unique features that play into their usability and especially you know, the potential for what, what catalyst is needed. Um, so Mark sort of walked through some of these, but we often have to define the protocol based on what we know about the oil, right? So Mark just talked about um, things like sorting, um, he talked about pre-treatment earlier a little bit. Um, so the questions that we ask at the beginning are, has any pre-treatment been done? Um, what is the origin? You know, going back to those three categories that Mark just walked through, whether it's plastic or, or bio or MSW, how long ago was it produced? Um, so we also have to think about that. So one of the big differences that we see between these feedstocks and let's say the traditional petroleum-based feedstocks is, is water content, right? So in petroleum-based feedstocks, this is often negligible, um, whereas in some of these cases, they can be quite high, especially for the, for the bio-based feeds. Um, in other cases, we might run into something like stability issues, right? Some, something that we don't normally think about when we talk about oil. Um, we think of oil as a really stable material that's shipped all over the world, um, but we really have to start thinking about that now. So we have to look at stability over time at various temperatures, uh, we have to understand if phase separation has happened or is happening, if any solids are forming. So we have to add that to the, the characterization work that we do up front. Um, another thing that we haven't had to think about before when we're talking about some of these traditional petroleum-based feedstocks is, you know, the presence of oxygenates. So the level of oxygenates and also the characterization of oxygenates, you know, what what do what those molecules look like? And um, in some recent cases, we've had to employ some pretty advanced techniques to answer that, which is very atypical for you know, the typical petroleum feedstock testing that we, that we do. Um, in other cases that we've run into, we find some unique metals that are present um, in, and sometimes in concentrations that we've never seen before. Um, so we also have to work with our analytical group to, to understand if we need to look at different standards um, and or look at whether the standards are applicable at those really high concentrations, right? So sometimes we have to go back to the drawing board there. Um, and then one thing that we often advise refiners to do is to go back to their to the source, right? So go back to the, in the case of pyrolysis oil at least, go back to the producer, right? And start to ask them, you know, questions about how they're testing, additional testing that the supplier can do to help make this process a little bit easier and, and to generate some of that information up front. Excellent, great points. And and so I, I want to dive a little bit back to uh, the FCC co-processing that, that we talked about uh, earlier, Melissa. And, and BASF has always been known as, you know, an expert in the field of, of catalysts. Um, and so my question is, with FCC co-processing, I mean, does existing catalysts in the market work for FCC co-processing? Yeah, and first, thank you for that, Lee. That's a nice compliment. Um, so, yeah, does does the current do current catalysts work? Um, what I can say for at least the recent time, so in in many cases that we've seen, um, the catalysts that are already being employed by refiners, the ones that are already available in the market they can and have been used for FCC co-processing of some of these alternative feedstocks, especially when we're talking about um, 
you know, Mark, Mark went through the different categories, right? So especially when we're talking about the plastic pyrolysis oils, particularly when they're based on like the polyolefin kind, um, this is especially true even for some of the um, bio-based feedstocks if they're coming in this in uh, as a vegetable oil, for example, some of the fats that are being uh, co-processed. So these types of feeds are, let's call them the easier ones, and they have uh, definitely been co-processed with the available catalysts that are already on the market, and especially the the, the scenario that we see today, right? So typical refiners that are looking at co-processing or already have, they're usually doing them at small percentages. And, you know, just to throw out some numbers here, we're talking about 10%, 5%. So single, maybe low double digits um, in the most extreme cases, but, you know, 5 to 10%, uh, we, what we've seen is the current catalyst technologies available in the market are more than sufficient to, to handle the contaminants and also the the change in yield patterns that that you might see with um, with the alternative feeds. Now, when we think about the the future, right? So, what might happen in the future? We might deviate away from these, let's call them the easy oils, into some of the more MSW or some of the biomass pyrolysis oils. So, refiners might start venturing deeper into that area. Um, and then they also might start co-processing at even higher levels. So in that, in those scenarios, um, then we might think about looking at different catalysts, right? Because the, the challenges that we're going to be faced with are um, similar to what I mentioned earlier. So the, the higher oxygenates coming in and especially the higher metals. Um, so when we're talking about metals, you know, often we see really high alkaline metals. So things like sodium, potassium chloride, uh, or uh, halogens. Um, so when we see these higher contaminants, alkali metals, halogens, um, then we really have to start thinking about can the catalyst handle it, right? Because those ones that I mentioned can have pretty severe impacts. And if you're increasing the amount of oil that you're co-processing, then we have to have another discussion. So um, that's where the, the efforts now are looking into is what happens when we get to the future, when we're working on some of these more difficult oils and when we're working at higher percentages, and that's where we'll have to focus in the future. Excellent. Now, I got one more question for y'all. And again, I really want to thank y'all for y'all's time today. Um, Mark, this one's for you. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, you know, what are the future benefits and opportunities of co-processing alternative feedstocks? Yeah, thanks, Lee, for that question. I think um, maybe I kick off with kind of a couple comments because Melissa really hit a lot of the key things, uh, I think, in terms of how she'd answer to get us started, which is one is the, the first thing is this transition is already happening it's, it, at low levels. So the future benefits are, are going to come from the fact that we've already started this transition to evaluate co-processing in some refiners. And operating at these low levels is going to help us transition to moving to the higher alternative uh, uh, use of alternative feedstocks at higher levels of co-processing because it's providing us this opportunity to gain learning quickly. It's helping us utilize the assets so that we get the experience um, in terms of the asset utilization with these new feedstocks. And then it's going to allow us to, to um, 
take that learning to move toward these uh, more, more difficult uh, feedstock levels where we increase the amount of feedstock we use or we move to more difficult feedstocks that will, will basically generate either more sustainability benefits or more uh, economic benefits for us in the market. So I see the discussion on, on how the catalyst um, has started to already be uh, used and applied to these feedstocks to help us generate the learning for the new ones. The second thing I see happening that's going to support us for the future is um, uh, in terms of the opportunities, really we see consumers today are looking for these more sustainable products. So we're starting to develop the market need for this. Um, so particularly uh, co-producing um, uh, through the FCC or hydro processing, either way, it is giving us a chance to take uh, voluntary certified um, credits uh, for these renewable materials and provide some of these sustainable products, particularly it's a, a, a driving demand as it goes into the, chemi uh, the, the chemical industry in terms of feedstocks to produce products. Um, in terms of the regulatory market, it is also seeing a lot of things helping us there. So the market, um, we're, we're, we're setting up regulations in a way that give us this opportunity to get a financial benefit to derive us uh, to be able to use these uh, to meet the requirements and mandates and it provides some economic tax credits or financial um, incentives, uh, depending on which region you operate in the world, uh, to drive us to uh, CCC benefits at the, at the operating uh, earnings level as well. So I think a strategy to implement co-processing of alternative feedstocks is going to translate into both some sustainability and economic benefits. Um, I think it's going to continue to grow as we look into the next decade. It will never be a, a complete transition in this direction. It's going to be a part of the portfolio of solutions. Uh, so co-processing is a tool or one of many tools that a refiner is going to be able to take advantage of. Uh, to use their existing assets and to get a high utilization of assets in uh, this energy transition. And then I think from BSF's point of view, we're continuing to help uh, the world uh, uh, by providing new innovative solutions, whether that's in impurity removals of, of the, in terms of the pile, taking those uh, impurities out of that pile so that it can be a great feedstock for co-processing, developing the new catalyst to help us move to higher levels, um, and to provide other sustainable solutions uh, to the market to help reduce the carbon footprint. Excellent. Well, again, like I mentioned, Melissa, Mark, really can't thank y'all enough for providing us a couple minutes today to discuss this really uh, interesting and informative uh, topic that's that's affecting the industry today. And of course, like always, we really want to thank all of you for listening to another installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. 